Yes, good morning, 11 o'clock, and good morning to everybody joining us online via live stream. If you're brand new with us, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, as Marie just mentioned, we are talking about sex and sexuality because, because it is really important that we understand a kingdom sexual ethic and uh, that we realize that our sexual formation is a vital part of following Jesus. And it isn't just so that we know something, it's so that we embody something. We embody the way of Jesus. Now, as before we get into the message here today, I do want to ask, uh, as much as I like expressive responsiveness, I'm going to ask everyone here not to clap or amen today, um, because uh, this will land differently for different people. And this message is not about uh, ammo for a culture war. This message is not about uh, a, a place to say, this is where I stand in response to the frustrations of the things that you experience in our culture. But instead, for all of us, it is an invitation to examine and consider our own sexuality, each of ours, rather than yelling it out there. And to be, and to hopefully understand and be compassionate toward ourselves, toward others. And so there's lots of voices on this subject in our day and age. And as followers of Jesus, we elevate the Scripture because we believe it to be authoritative and trustworthy. So the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, it's not the only one throughout the Scripture, but the one I want us to focus on here today is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which finds itself in a, in a culture, uh, a surrounding culture of the city that is obsessed with autonomy, personal rights, and total sexual freedom. Sounds a lot like our culture today. And Paul is addressing sexual practices within the Corinthian church that are incongruent with the way of Jesus. And he starts by saying, I have the right to do anything. You say that. He's, that's in quotes because these are slogans of the day. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So he starts off by highlighting, but also then deconstructing their cultural slogans of the day. Sounds a lot like ours. We've added to them, follow your heart. You be you. Live your own truth. Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. If it feels good, do it. I was a college pastor for 11 years prior to uh, moving to Fort Collins to plant Mill City Church with Jossie and our four four boys. And uh, as a college pastor, I did a lot of weddings and hours and hours and hours of premarital counseling. And in the earlier uh, years of learning and doing premarital counseling, uh, I remember asking the question uh, to a couple saying, how's your physical relationship? Thinking I was asking about how your boundaries doing. And their response was, great. It was great in one way, uh, maybe not the best way is what I learned. And as I asked a little more uh, in a follow-up session, They said, we feel great about it. We feel peace about having sex before marriage. As if somehow, like, that's, we feel good, it's fine. 
Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul uh, writes to the church in Rome, and he, this is out of the message paraphrase of the Scripture. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Recognize, readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Paul is saying that we are called to live differently, to be weird, not for weird's sake, but to follow the way of Jesus, which is so often, as it was in the first century and as it is today, weird. We are called, as we've titled this series, to be a peculiar people. There was an article written by a journalist columnist named Ben Sixsmith, and he was writing a, 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 an article about the moral failures of many Christian leaders. And in it, he says this, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to be more like them, it looks very much like they want to become more like me. The goal of this series is for us to come around what it looks like to embody the way of Jesus and for the community of God to be uh, an alternative type of community that uh, communicates not in yelling and words, but in action and in an embodied state of what it looks like to live a flourishing life under the rule and reign of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians, another letter that Paul writes, chapter 4, he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. This word sanctified is, is, a, is a transformation word. It is to be changed, to be, to be uh, made into the image and the likeness of Jesus. So, just in case you're wondering, God is interested in changing you. He's interested in transformation from the inside out. And he says that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. He says learn to control your body. This is God's will for you so that you don't let your sexual energies run wild and to be honorable and holy. Now, this word holy, I'm not sure what comes into your mind or what you imagine when you, when you think this, but uh, it is not just a moral word, a do and don't word. It is, it is a consecration word that God says, be holy as I am holy. It's, it's to be set apart. God is not just a little bit better than, He is other than. He is unique and set apart, consecrated, and He's saying, I want you to be consecrated. I want you to be set apart. 
So in this series called Peculiar People, each week we've had this juxtaposition between what we as the followers of Jesus are trying to embody as a community in a cultural uh, milieu that is dominated by something else. And so today, the juxtaposition is a community of holiness in a culture of trivial sexuality. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, when he uses this term sexual immorality, it is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography. But it doesn't just mean images that are looked at. It actually has a more broad meaning than that, and it is that it is any sexual act outside the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, this was revolutionary in the first century, and this was revolutionary now. In the first century, as is true today, sex is treated frivolously. So, things like sex before marriage, hookup culture, lust, pornography, soft porn on a Netflix series, masturbation, same-sex marriage is seen as normal. And one of the goals of the enemy is to normalize sin. But our world would say that to think other than that being normal is not only strange, but some would even say somehow dangerous. But the sexual ethic of followers of Jesus is very distinct from the world. It was distinct from the Roman Greco-sexual, Greco-Roman sexual ethic of the first century, just like it's distinct and unique and different today. Stephen Smith, in his book, Pagans and Christians in the City, described the first century Christian sexual ethic as initiating and, and starting a sexual revolution. He writes this, Christian sexual morality did not rely on the assumptions that informed Roman attitudes and practices, but instead was grounded in an entirely different set of premises. The early church stood out from the rest of society not merely because of what they claimed to be true of God, but also because of the distinctive behaviors they adopted regarding sexuality. These were not restrictions, but a grand vision of sex that guided their actions. See, what he's suggesting is you can't just ask, is this pleasurable, as the only and every question surrounding this topic, but to ask a bigger question, and that is, what story am I a part of? The story that we believe that we are a part of starts in Genesis 1, where God creates a world as He designed it to be, a world for humans to flourish within it which meant that there were boundaries for ways that we, we wouldn't flourish, and that was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But within God's perfect world, God made human bodies. He made sex. He made a sex drive, and He made it so that there was for, as He says, fill the earth and multiply and fill the earth for reproduction, and you read throughout the Scripture, and it is also for pleasure. Proverbs chapter 5, one of the many places, you can read the book of Song of Songs to really go for it, but uh, Proverbs 5, you are allowed to laugh today, by the way. (laughs) Verse 18 says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
a loving doe, doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This word intoxicated in the Hebrew uh, is translated bow wow, check a wow wow. Wow is what it means. Um, <laughs> God is the one who created it. God created our bodies. God created sexual desire. And the one who creates something is the one who determines its best use and purpose. In other words, he knows how it works best. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve being tempted to by a serpent, by the enemy, to determine good and evil for themselves. In other words, saying, you know what? We want to be the ones who say what's best. We want to be the ones that would define and direct what is right and wrong and how things should work. And ever since then, God's perfect uh, creation working in its perfect way for the flourishing of all humanity has broken down. We see the results and the impact of all of that all around us. Abigail Favalli, in her book, The Genesis of Gender, says, according to the gender paradigm, there is no creator. And so we are free to create ourselves. The body is an object with no intrinsic meaning. We give it whatever meaning we want, using technology to undo what is perceived to be natural. We do not receive meaning from God or our bodies or the world. We impose it. Now, in the invitation of, of sin and evil into the world, of death coming into the world by the breaking of God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin didn't just create a breakdown of morality. It also brought a relational breakdown. A relational breakdown between humans and God, humans and others, and humans and themselves. Because what, was, what happened was a disordering of loves. And the reality is, is we all have disordered loves. Every single one of us as a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. There are no, there's not one person in this room that has perfectly ordered loves. And as followers of Jesus, with the goal of sanctification or transformation, we are all learning how our loves are to be rightly ordered. That's in relationship to sex. It's also in relationship to money. And it's in relationship to power. And it's in relationship to food. And it's in relationship uh, to time. And the list goes on and on. And to be an apprentice of Jesus... To become like him, to do what he did, is to have our desires directed. See, somebody might be struggling with pornography. The desire that drives it is good. It's just pointed in the wrong direction. Infidelity is born out of a good desire. It just is pointed in the wrong direction. See, it's just like if you're if you're cold and you want some warmth, you could go to your house and light your kitchen table on fire. It is an option. 
And you could sit out next to your, your, your kitchen table while it's burning, and you could like, oh, this is so nice, just warming up feel so secure, and this is so comforting, and, and it's so, I'm warm. But keep it up, and the table lights the rug on fire, and the ceiling on fire, and, and before you know it, the whole house is on fire, and you're not sitting next to that, that table, and like, oh, this is so wonderful, and I feel so comforted and secure. No, actually, what at one point was creating those things is now destroying those things. The fire in and of itself is not bad. It's where it's supposed to be that is the issue. It belongs in a fireplace with boundaries to keep it in the place that it's supposed to be so it continues to offer warmth and comfort and security. Our culture says that sexuality is to be determined, but Christians believe sexuality is to be surrendered to God, that we surrender it to His way and His boundaries. And Jesus continues this in Matthew chapter 16, and he says this in multiple places in his ministry on the earth when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to apprentice under me, whoever wants to become more like me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What is Jesus saying? Nobody gets out of a cross. And we all submit all of our lives. We all submit our sexuality to God. Restraint is seen as oppression in our culture. Like, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how I should act. But self-control is not repressive. Any more than taming and training a wild horse to channel its energies is somehow demeaning to the horse. St. Augustine said, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by saying, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will rise us also. The reason that this is in here and what he's highlighting is he's talking about the high value of the body. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you missed that message on the theology of the physical physical presence, the theology of the body, I highly recommend you go back and watch or listen to it. What he's saying is it's not just something to be treated like a sack of protein, that it's somehow just to be, it doesn't really matter. It actually is something that matters and is valued by God significantly. So much so that God is interested in renewing our physical bodies. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul here is talking about uh, prostitution because he's specifically referring to uh, the worship that would happen around particular temples in that particular day. 
Uh, they would worship the goddess uh, Venus or the goddess Diana, which were, they, so they were god, the goddesses of sex. And so uh, in or, at those temples, around those temples were prostitutes, and it would be seen as an act of worship to then sleep with a temple prostitute. And what he's saying is, that is not the way of Jesus. Now, he's not limiting the misuse of our bodies to prostitution. He's just utilizing that in this particular way. Because he says something here really important. He says, do not unite yourself. This word unite is not just a euphemism or another way of saying don't sleep with her or him. It's actually, this word unite actually means to fuse together at the deepest level. Which is why he makes a reference to Genesis chapter 2 where he says two will become one flesh. It is more than just somehow some sort of bodily interchange. There's actually something much deeper going on, a deeper fusing going on, a deeper connection happening. And he says, so we don't treat our bodies trivially, and we don't embrace something as if something bigger is not happening. The effects of pornography have been studied, and and there's so much different research that's coming out. One of those things being that, that pornography, seeing something on a screen, impacts how it works in real life, or if it doesn't. There's studies going on that describe what happens when someone has an orgasm, that, that there's a brain wiring that happens in that moment where that moment is branded into the brain, which means that what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. You actually carry it with you. I remember several years ago uh, hearing a story about this from this woman who had said, um, I'm married and um, I need you to help us with some, a sexual issue. My husband can't have sex without his rubber boots on. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> Come to find out that when he was young, he would go outside to masturbate. And every time he went outside, he put his rubber boots on. So what was fused into his brain through what he saw when he experienced orgasm was rubber boots. Those two things went together. I told you it was going to be PG-13 today. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Step number one in being a community of holiness, learn how to run. Paul is actually referencing Joseph running from Potiphar's wife, who potentially was trying to rape him. As he just runs away from the situation, she's asking him to sleep with her, and he leaves his cloak, runs away. She ends up framing him, saying that she, he was somehow attacking her. But at the end of the day, it was, don't linger. Don't flirt with this. Don't think, oh, you know, I'll run later. But run! Learn how to run. And then he says, all other sins in a, a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The cultural mantra 
of do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. What God says here is you're actually harming yourself. You are impacting someone else. There are consequences to sex outside of God's design, but you're hollowing out your soul. You are hurting your own self. He continues, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? In our day and age, sex and sexuality has been turned into an identity that we create. But the scripture says that as a follower of Jesus, we don't create our own identities, we receive a new identity. Paul writes to all of these different churches in this type of context, and he regularly starts off each of his letters with things like, to the saints in Ephesus, to, those who are, to the holy ones in Philippi. And he goes on to talk about, now he doesn't say, to all you crazy sinners in Corinth, to the saints in Corinth. Now, is he aware that they are living according to disordered loves? Of course, he addresses that in the letter. But he doesn't say, you are sinners, scum, worms, maybe somehow you could just do something saintly. No, no, no. You are. You are. This is your identity. You're saints. You are holy. You might have the ability to sin, to live according to a disordered love. But this is who you are. And he says, you are a temple. Temples, yes, set apart but the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where the presence of God dwells. Who are you? You're a carrier of the Spirit and the presence of God. I think it's kind of funny sometimes when, when somebody will talk to me and realize that I'm a pastor and they, and they curse. And they're like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Like somehow, like, like I, I don't know, like I'm holy or holier than them. And or, 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 you know, at a church, you know, a church gathering, and, and, and they're like, oh, oh, sh- oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 this, this is a building. You're holy. Like, like I, I know, I, I hear you thinking that, oh, I, I'm sorry to, like, like somehow impact you. I, no, I'm not holy. We are holy. You're holy. Because the Spirit of God dwells within you. And he says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. My body doesn't belong to me. Your body doesn't belong to you as a follower of Jesus. It belongs to God. And why does he say it that way? Because he says you were bought with a price. Any American Pickers fans in the room? I like watching that show. It's a show on the History Channel, and they um, and these people drive around the country, and this and they and they're always looking for like barns and you know people that have collected or hoarded things over the years, and 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 they're looking around, and sometimes they'll find a sign, and I'm like, oh, that's cool, and they're like, I'll give you four thousand dollars for this. And I'm like, what? Like, wow, they're willing to pay a high price for that. And it's so fascinating to find out what something's worth. Scripture says that you're bought with a price. 
I'd like to suggest not one of us was bought at a garage sale. <laughs> we bought with the blood of Jesus. Gave his life away for restoration, for transformation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, which is right before the passage that we've been looking into here today, says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Notice, it's not just about sexual immorality. It's about all these other things that are disordered loves, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, will experience the flourishing in the kingdom. And that is what some of you were. 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 He says, but you are washed. You are sanctified, transformed. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are washed, not by your own efforts, but by the work of God. See, culture says you are born this way. Jesus says you must be born again. Now, I'm not trying to make a point about whether or not we're born with disordered loves. I'm trying to make a point of the fact that God is interested in renewing and transforming. Now, some of you might say, I, I, I've been washed, but I still am wrestling with or tempted towards or, or find myself leaning into. Romans chapter 8 says that we wait eagerly for the redemption for things to be made right. We are waiting eagerly for Jesus to come back because when Jesus comes back and redeems all things, all of our loves will be reordered and rightly ordered again. And so we wait, we struggle, we fight, we run, and we wait with hope that even though things have maybe been burned into our brains, that there's renewal, there's washing, there's redemption. That those things, our sin, our disordered loves will not have the last word. So our weekly practice is to identify, confess, and surrender your disordered loves to God. For some of you, you're like, yeah, it takes no time to identify. But every one of us in here myself included, has disordered loves. I don't know what it looks like for you, and it may be in relationship to sex and sexuality, and I want us all to start there first. It also might have to do with power or money. Or myriad of other things. But you can you confess it. It says that when we confess to God, this is in 1 John 1, 9, that we, when we confess it, he is faith to God. He's faithful to forgive us. So confess it to God. The scripture also encourages us in James chapter 5 that we are to confess to one another so that we might be healed. Maybe you need to not only confess to God, but you need to share it with a spouse, share it with a mentor, city group leader, trusted friend. 
to bring it out of the darkness into the light. That is the reason for confession. Confession is not about humiliation. It is about humbling ourselves and saying, I need light in places of darkness. Confession is about healing, not about shaming. And we surrender it to God. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, Not my will be done, but your will be done. And that we would, just like Jesus, come to the same place where we say, I surrender. I surrender it to you. And I don't know where you find yourself in here. Maybe you're single and you find yourself aching, longing, longing not only to be married, but for sexual intimacy. I think it's important to recognize for any one of us, whether single or married, to not make sex an idol. It is a gift from God, but even it being a gift from God, it can become an idol. At the end of the day, sex is not the ultimate. Intimacy is the ultimate. We honor your wrestling as you wait. Maybe for some of you, you're ravaged with shame. Shame over what you've done. Maybe you're embracing pornography. Maybe you've been unfaithful, treated sex as trivial, used other people. Maybe you can't even count the number of people you've been with. Or maybe you find yourself not only experiencing shame, but it wasn't a choice of yours, it was somebody else that chose it. Maybe forced themselves. You've experienced trauma and abuse. And the pain is deep and the pain is real. I want to say, wherever you find yourself here today, that there is renewal and there is redemption. If you find yourself here today wrestling with same-sex attraction, trying to stay true to a Christian sexual ethic. I want you to believe that you are a part of a family, and may we, as a family of God, come around and support and encourage and come alongside and be and create the family that God has designed for the family of God to be. Whatever your story we lament the brokenness of the world. We protest and say this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we also look forward together with hope for the fact that God will restore and will redeem, that God washes, that he heals, and he redeems and will ultimately reorder. And so even as we embrace a historical Orthodox Christian sex ethic, we also we also take a radically loving posture towards everyone to be empathetic, to be curious, to surround and to support, to let you know that you're welcome here. In Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son comes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance. Now that's really dishonoring, very disrespectful. You're not dead yet, but I want, I want my part. 
And so he takes it and he goes out and spends it on wild living, finds himself in a pig pen, starving. And out of an effort to fill his stomach, he says, I'm just going to go work for my dad. At least maybe then I'll get a, a paycheck. I'll, I'll, be a, I'll be an employee. But there's something profound about this particular story, and that is that the, the father didn't burn the bridge back to home. When the son is on his way back and rehearsing this speech in his mind, about how he just was willing to just work for his dad. His dad doesn't wait for him to cross the bridge. He runs across the bridge to meet his son and welcomes him home, not as a, one of his employees, but as his son. Say, no, 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 you're my boy. And our goal here is to embody the love of the Father. Our goal is not to shame you, but to invite you. The scripture says there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have an enemy who is an accuser. He doesn't need any help. The Holy Spirit is a convictor. I find that I'm not a good devil and I'm not a good Holy Spirit. Our goal is not to be the accuser and condemner or the convictor. Our goal is to embody the love of the Father. The Apostle Paul says that we are to run or flee from sexual immorality. And I would invite us all to take that posture. But he's talking about what we should run from. And can I just say, we don't just run from something, we run to something. And we run to the open and loving, embracing arms of the Father. So will you do that here today? Every one of us. Believing that the grace of God goes deeper than anything we could have ever done, anything we ever wrestle with, that healing and life and redemption will have the last word, not our failures, not our shame, but the life wins. Jesus his resurrection, his redemption, his grace, his forgiveness wins. Has the last word. You and I, the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to have Callie uh, up here. <laughs> and she's going to sing, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here temple is the place for the Holy Spirit where the Spirit of God dwells. I wonder if you'd be willing just open your hands like this as a way of receiving, being reminded of that reality of who you are, the identity each one of us has as holy, carriers of the presence of God. For some of you, you're like, yes, and for some of you, you're like, it seems crazy to me. So Holy Spirit, would you help us to receive from you?
God with our bodies. Worship God with our bodies. Give glory to God with our bodies. With all that we are. For some of you here today, maybe this is your first time in church, or maybe you've never made that decision to offer yourself, body included, to God. To say, I belong to you. I want to glorify you. Or maybe you're like the prodigal son and you've gone and giving yourself over to wild living and you would be able to share the story that it has hollowed out your soul. You say, I need to come home to surrender. If that's you here today, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, Holy Spirit is inviting you to cross the line of faith by simply saying under your breath, I surrender. Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all I am to you. It's all yours. It's not the only thing we need to say God nor the only, to God, nor the only thing that we'll ever surrender to God. And for all of us, we should really be surrendering every day. And so I want to lead us in a prayer that applies for all of us, a prayer of surrender, to embody the way of Jesus, to live into the reality of the kingdom. It's the Holy Spirit of God. We need you. Jesus, we thank you for what you did on the cross to redeem and to wash. And Holy Spirit of God, would you help us to wait, <laughs> and to wait with hope for all of us in any and all the ways that our loves are disordered towards ourselves, towards others, towards you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be able to get a, a revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus, our identity that we receive from you and how you've called us saints, holy ones, temples, to be carriers of your presence, bring a message of hope and life to the world around us. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody said,